At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Several studies have shown that millennials and Gen Zers are drinking less alcohol than older generations. Sales of non-alcoholic beverages and cocktails have become increasingly popular in recent years. Later, we'll hear about an Atlanta-based beverage company that's serving up an alternative. Plus, the artist Harry Underwood talks about the use of vintage postcard stencils in his nostalgia-inducing paintings. And WABE's H. Johnson brings us a jazz moment with trumpeter Clifford Brown. First, together with its role in world history, the Holocaust has been the subject of literature, film, theater, music, and art. This past September, PBS premiered the three-part documentary series The U.S. and the Holocaust, directed and produced by Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein. On Wednesday, January 25th, I will moderate a panel discussion about this series at the Temple on Peachtree Street. Ahead of that event, let's listen back to my conversation with filmmakers Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein. They began by explaining how the series expands our understanding of the tragedy that was the Holocaust. Well, we were interested, along with Ken Burns, our partner and collaborator, and Jeffrey C. Ward, our writer and our team of producers, in exploring questions that we did not know the answers to. And those were, what was America's response to the Holocaust, to Hitler's rise to power, to the persecution of the Jewish people of Europe, as it was unfolding. And to get at that question, we had to find out what actually happened in Europe and how did Americans find out about it over those years? You know, what did we know? How did we know it? When did we know it? And what did we do in response to that knowledge? And it took us many years to unpack all of those questions 
and it became an exploration both of the events of the Holocaust, the catastrophic humanitarian crisis that unfolded as the persecution of the Jewish people of Europe gained you know, power and strength and people were trying to get out and whether America was willing to be a nation of refuge and asylum for the oppressed or not. And sadly, uh, we discovered, you know, although we did admit many people, we could have admitted many, many more. Mm. The title immediately reveals the documentary's perspective, and it was inspired in part by the exhibition Americans and the Holocaust at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. When did you decide to take on this project? So thank you for asking about that. We feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to work as closely with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington as we did. They approached us in 2015 when they were in the early stages of their exhibition. And then we began to really go into full-fledged production on our side in 2018. And throughout this making the series worked very closely with their archivists, their scholars, the educational Department of the Holocaust Museum and feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with them. How long did it take you to complete the six-hour series? We really began full-scale production in 2018, so that's four years ago. That's when we began working on the script and conducting interviews with witnesses, survivors, and historians, and doing the archival research. Hmm. The Diary of Anne Frank is said to have put a face on the Holocaust. Why does the story of her father, Otto Frank, provide a similar role in this documentary? I think arguably many, 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 many people's entry to this subject matter is her extraordinary diary. And when we set out to begin research on the film, it came to our attention that Otto Frank had tried to get his family to the United States, a fact that Lynn, Jeff, Ken, myself, we didn't know, and suddenly made her feel much more relevant and important to an exploration of the U.S. response to the Holocaust, because if Otto Frank had succeeded in getting Anne Frank her sister and his wife and family here, as Lynn often says, Anne Frank could very well be alive today. So I think it will be surprising to American audiences that her family tried to get here. And then once we made the decision to explore that thread, we were able to think about Anne Frank and explore the diary and get to know her in some different ways, which I won't give away on this interview, but we were fortunate enough to interview a young woman who met Anne Frank in Amsterdam and was hidden in the same network of houses and has a very interesting story that ties her back to Anne Frank at the end of the war. So we really, once we started with that idea, it became a very, very, very interesting and exciting part of the project for us to to think about her in a different context. There are frightening parallels between descriptions of behaviors and events beginning 90 plus years ago and the present. How does the rise of fascism in Europe, Nazism in particular, mirror recent history in the United States? 
Well, we tried to stay focused in this project on telling the story of what happened then. And we let the audience for the most part sort of recognize the parallels and the echoes, you know, but they are undeniable and unmistakable. And we're living in, as we say, often frightening times. And some of the most concerning parallels have to do with a kind of mainstreaming of hate speech and bigotry and dehumanizing of people. You know, with Hitler and the Nazis, they were targeting Jews in particular, but many other groups. We see that same dynamic playing out in our society today and around the world in Europe as well, of how immigrants are described and people who are considered other and treated as less than human and not welcomed into democratic societies. And we're also seeing a kind of just general trend toward authoritarianism. It's a word I have trouble saying. And, you know, it's 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 disturbing to think about what that means in a democracy that you can have propaganda being repeated over and over again, just complete falsehoods, lies. And the more often they're said, they sort of slide into the realm of people believe things that are absolutely not true and did not happen. We see violence, actual violence perpetrated against the democratic system and the threat of violence. And we have a kind of mob mentality that people feel aggrieved and other people are scapegoated. And that kind of adds fuel to the fire. And so we're seeing a lot of the ingredients that were at play in the 30s, you know, very present in our life today. And it's quite concerning. Among the harrowing comments from Hitler that we hear in this series were references to Jim Crow laws and citing the U.S. as a role model for taking land from the original peoples in the Western expansion of America. What Was that a discovery for you? Well, I think I'll speak for myself. This is Sarah. Again, when we started to make the film and we're doing research about how to start the film, when we would when in American history would start the film and then thinking about the rise of Hitler and his inspiration, we became aware of the fact that as he was coming to power, he did look to American history and how we handled the Native American displacement and murder and the Jim Crow laws and the segregation in the United States. And so while it's very, very important, and we've all made sure to make clear that Americans were not responsible in any way for the Holocaust and, you know, were terrific saviors in the Second World War in many, many ways, Hitler's drawing on American failures, experiences, racism at home as he moved east, just the way we had moved west, was an important piece for us to include in the film. You include a chilling quote from North Carolina Senator Robert Reynolds. In 1941, he said, if it were up to him, he'd build a wall around the U.S. and hunt down illegal immigrants. Yeah. How finely polished is that mirror from 1941 and the echo of events in recent years. One of the central 
tensions in our society and American history and in our film is, you know, whether we are in fact a nation of immigrants as the Statue of Liberty represents, or whether we would like to build a wall and keep the other people who we don't want here, whoever we decide those people are, to keep them out. And we got a much deeper understanding of those tensions and how that dynamic is at play in our history and in our society to this day. And, you know, we sort of start the clock for us in the 19th century with the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first time that we passed a law to restrict immigration and to keep out people of from China. And that was just purely a bigoted racist impulse that, you know, the idea was that people from Asia, especially the Chinese, didn't belong here. And that escalated and escalated until 1924 when Congress passed something called the Johnson-Reed Act, which we learned more about in making this film. There had been mostly open borders before that, and millions of people had come here from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, and they were changing the, the nature of the country, we think, for the better. But at the time, it was very disputed whether it was good for America to have people coming here who, quote, weren't you know, like us. And us in that context was just to be very direct about it, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And, you know, after the Johnson Reed Act was passed, strict quotas were set up for every country, minimizing the numbers of people who could come from largely Catholic Southern Europe and from largely Jewish and Catholic Eastern Europe. And that that was deliberate. That was done with great purpose. And so when Senator Reynolds is saying that in 1940-41, it's because there's a refugee crisis happening because of Hitler's rise to power, because of Nazi persecution. There's millions of people who are trying to get out of Europe. Many of them, most of them are Jewish. And he's being quite explicit that we don't want those kinds of immigrants coming to America. And he, he's speaking to a country that is nodding its head at that time. First-person stories of survivors and witnesses are interwoven with the historical presentation. The survivor stories had tremendous emotional impact and bring us into the unfolding events. How did you locate and decide which people to include? Uh, we found each of them in different and similar ways. We worked very closely with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum to find some of them. We found some of them because we were looking for a specific angle. Gunter, who later becomes Guy Stern, came when he was slightly older and then fought with the Americans in the war. And we were interested in a story like that. For this film, we really feel very, very privileged to get to know the families and the people people who were children then. And Lynn has talked a lot about this, you know, interviewing people who were children at the time when the events took place was somewhat different for us. And so you're dealing with childhood memory, childhood trauma, childhood events. And then again, as Lynn has eloquently talked about imagining if you are older and a parent or a grandparent, the decisions you would have made, and then hearing about those decisions through a child's memory was how we put those interviews together in the film. In a film with a large cast of villains, Members of the U.S. State Department could be included among them. What were some revelations you had while making this documentary? 
I think to varying degrees, we had some sense that the State Department was a place where the effort to keep people from getting here was centered because they controlled the visa process. And you had to have a visa to come here and there were quotas for every country and there were certain regulations about what you needed to get a visa. You had to prove that you wouldn't be a dependent on the government. You had to show that you didn't have a criminal record. You had to get letters of support and you know a whole lot of paperwork. And as Sarah always says, this is a film about paperwork. And the State Department, not only did they follow the letter of the law, they sort of went above and beyond to make it harder, partly out of, in some cases, just overt anti-Semitism and, and nativism. And in some cases, for some people, perhaps, you know, a fear of the possibility that refugees might become spies for Nazi Germany, which was a very faint possibility, but it justified a lot of the effort to keep people out. You know, there wasn't a huge public outcry among the, the nation to say to the the government or the State Department, you have to you know, open our doors. To me, the most terrifying villain that we came across really is Charles Lindbergh, the aviator, because, you know, I right, I, I knew he had been sort of um, brought down a peg for saying some anti-Semitic things at a when he gave a speech in 1941. But we went back and listened to his earlier speeches when he first became, you know, very vocal to speak to the American public about staying out of the war that was brewing in Europe. And he had been quite admiring of a lot of things about Nazi Germany. His wife openly admired Adolf Hitler. They'd spent time there in the mid thirties. They thought about moving there, you know, and they, they didn't, they decided not to do that after Kristallnacht, but nonetheless, when he speaks, he's talking quite explicitly about how we have to defend the white race and, you know, sort of, explicitly and implicitly saying a lot of racist and anti-Semitic things. And he is hugely popular at the time. It reminded me of the Philip Roth book. Mm, yeah. The Plot Against the plot America. Plot Against America. was pretty scary fiction. And to think that he was also such a, a hero, such a popular hero for what he did as a pilot. Right. Well, we tend to put people up on pedestals for all kinds of reasons. They can do something on an athletic field or some feat that really, you know, he was a great pilot. We don't want to take that away from him. It didn't give him any particular great perspective on foreign affairs or military, you know, might or things like that. But he was a child of the Midwest and he, the background he came from, this kind of um, eugenics, white supremacist, racist, anti-Semitic ideas I think we have to say, you know, really hit home with him, struck a chord with him. And he had a way of talking about these things with great confidence. And the American people, a lot of Americans applauded. And we have in the film a quote that FDR privately said he thought Lindbergh was a Nazi. So we have to deal with that too. There's still airports named after him, you know? This is true. And streets and yeah. yes, all kinds of adulation. With all that is brought out in the series, now what we know about Breckenridge Long and some of the other State Department officials, do you think that the criticism of Franklin Roosevelt in more recent decades, holding him accountable for not doing enough, do you think that may diminish after these discoveries you made? 
Well, we'll see, won't we? You know, what we try to do is present a more nuanced picture and let people decide for themselves. And we really think it's important not to just blame Roosevelt for everything. And we hope that that sort of more complicated look at all of our collective responsibility will get through. But Roosevelt still, as the president, there's no doubt he could have done more, but it might have been at a cost in ways that we can't anticipate that might have set the set the larger cause back. So I think it's good for us as Americans and for our viewers to just reflect about all of that. There are heroes you cite, righteous Gentiles, as they have been called, most famously the Swedish diplomat Raoul Wallenberg. And you introduce names not as well-known, Varian Fry, Jan Karski, and John Paley. Is it possible to summarize their achievements? Thank you so much for bringing up the, that wonderful cast of characters and bright spots in this film. You know, each of them did different heroic things at different times and figured out ways to both get around the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the complicated dynamics of getting here. On the one hand, people like Varian Fry and Hiram Bingham Jr. and the Sharps and the beautiful scene about them in the second episode. John Paley is a great hero of the government working out of the Treasury Department. The War Refugee Board is a great way to think about how once we really had a much better sense of what was going on and millions of Jews had already died, there was a big population of Hungarian Jews left and we were able to help them get out. And that's a, that's a great moment of American help. And Jan Karski, of course, worked for the Polish underground and got information to the United States and around the world. So we feel lucky to have included those stories. And I think each of them are a different example of how we could have done more. This series also covers the importance of journalist Dorothy Thompson and the activist Laura Margolis. Sarah, what kind of educational outreach material will be available from PBS? So we are working very closely with the whole PBS infrastructure, which is an incredible network of stations around the country to work with local communities, libraries, synagogues, churches, community centers. And then we are doing even bigger for us. We always do educational outreach. We always make lesson plans. There's always the Ken Burns classroom on PBS Learning Media. But for this film, we spent the better part of the last couple of years working very, very closely with teachers, the Holocaust Museum, Echoes and Reflections, Facing History, different organizations that primarily figure out ways to teach this period in history and connect it with things that are happening in the present. And we are really hoping that those lesson plans will be useful to teachers and that we have materials that will ignite conversations with all different kinds of people across the country. Sarah, I read that your parents lost most of their relatives to the Holocaust. Oh, thank you. Yes. It, several of the people on the film are Jewish. Many of us are not. We have many varied voices, which I think is terrific. We all like to think about 
history from different perspectives and different backgrounds. On my father's side, I'm a first-generation American. My father's family got here thanks to the extraordinary work of Hyas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. My great-grandparents were able to get to Mexico City thanks to the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. So on my father's side, I have a lot of history here and many of my relatives were killed and others got out through different means. I wish my grandparents were alive to see the film. I guess I was also wondering what effect it had on you to be immersed in this horrific material over a long period of time. I mean, nightmares. Very, very sad, very frightening time in history, I think also gave us energy because it felt so urgently important and the world around us was changing while we were making it. And that gave us the, I think, strength and energy to to make the film. Finally, in the film, the historian and the special envoy, Deborah Lipstadt, says, tyrants will go as far as you let them. What are your hopes for the impact of this series? Deborah Lipstadt is one of the more extraordinary people we've ever been privileged to interview, get to know, work with. She has some of the most important things to say in the film. She also says, you know, how can we learn from the past? Where did we go wrong? How can we do better? So I think, again, the privilege to work in a democracy. And as Ken has said, the time to save a democracy is before it crumbles. So I think it's a warning sign that we need to protect what is the privilege to live in a democracy. Documentary filmmakers Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein from our conversation this past September. You can view the U.S. and the Holocaust via PBS Passport. I invite you to join WABE and me at the Temple on Peachtree for a panel discussion about the U.S. and the Holocaust on Wednesday, January 25th. More information about the event is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans discusses dry January with the owners of the Zero Co. bottle shop. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights on WABE. 
I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Several studies have shown that millennials and Gen Zers are drinking less alcohol than older generations. Sales of non-alcoholic beverages and cocktails have become increasingly popular in recent years. City Lights producer Summer Evans has more about an Atlanta-based beverage company that's serving up an alternative. The Zero Proof is a leading curator, wholesaler, and online retailer of non-alcoholic wine and spirits. Last month, the Zero Proof Co. Bottle Shop opened in the Ponce Highland neighborhood. It's Atlanta's first non-alcoholic bottle shop. CEO and co-founder of The Zero Proof, Sean Goldsmith, said he started the business after wanting a career change. I was living in New York City at the time, and I had decided I wanted a career change, so left my job after 10 years and was kind of just deciding what I wanted to do next. And in the interim, I, I came back from a long weekend in Miami where I had a little too much fun and got back to New York and just decided to take a break from booze, just to kind of dry out. Around the same time, Sean found out that his best friend and now business partner, Trevor Wolf, was also taking a break from alcohol. So we just started talking about how great we were feeling and, and also what we were drinking. And that led us to searching around the internet and finding a, a handful of products that were available. And we started this blog, thezeroproof.com, to talk about the products and kind of the big the big difference that we wanted with the blog was everything out there was really about recovery at the time and we thought there was a different conversation to be had just around lifestyle and these interesting really premium and delicious drinks and that led to us starting to import all of these incredible products from Europe where this NA trend is much further along and we launched an e-com business and it was off to the races in the beginning, there were only a handful of non-alcoholic spirits available to the public, so they saw an opportunity to expand and create a much-needed business. Sean and Trevor decided to partner with someone in Atlanta to bring their alternative beverages to the storefront. We really wanted to work with best-in-class bottle shops you know, that are selling high-end products with a well-educated staff that are going to spend some time to tell people about this category. And I think just doing a search around Atlanta, Elemental Spirits was literally number one on my hit list. Corey Atkinson is the owner of Elemental Spirits. Elemental creates small batches of spirits with some limited wine and craft beer options. We opened uh, Elemental Spirits Co. in 2020 and really focused on creating a um, customer-focused, experience-driven bottle shop where you know you can come in and, and sort of explain what you're trying to make at home or what meal you're making and have one of our staff be able to curate you a, a really amazing experience um, with wine and spirits. And early on, we found that the non-alcoholic part of that was, was a huge piece too. And so our journey to open the Zero Co really was started with the idea that, you know, just because you're not drinking alcohol doesn't mean that you don't crave the same experiences that someone that is drinking alcohol would want. And so we really worked with the Zero Proof to carry everything that they were bringing in and, you know, try to give them feedback on things that the customers were liking and, and things that 
they were doing with these products. And we just saw the space continue to evolve and grow. And I felt there was a time and a place. And now was that um, in terms of getting a, a non-alcoholic shop going. Thus, the Zero Proof Co. was born and also opened in the Ponce Highland neighborhood in December of 2022. Since opening, they have seen a major uptick in sales due to dry January. And for those that are unfamiliar, dry January is a trend in which people abstain from alcohol for the entire month. Dry January is certainly a, a, a huge reason that a lot of customers are coming in at the moment. And we love it because it's a really great opportunity to expand the options for people, not just during dry January, but anytime that they want to take a, a break. And the idea that they've got a space to come explore and to come taste and to come chat with our staff, who's extremely knowledgeable about the products that are on the shelf, is a great opportunity to, to sort of grow this category. If dry January, if you're participating in, participating in that, we, we love that. But you know, it's also a great opportunity to sort of move past that and, and find other opportunities to, to cut alcohol out of your life in any way that you'd like. You might be surprised to know that 82% of people who consume non-alcoholic beverages also drink alcohol themselves. The Zero Proof Co. customer base includes a wide spectrum of those who have eliminated alcohol from their diet, all the way to those who mix Zero Proof and alcoholic beverages into their daily routine. Now, you might be wondering, how are these zero-proof drinks created? Here, Sean explains. It really depends brand to brand, but you're starting with a base. Sometimes that base is a, is a spirit with the alcohol removed. Sometimes it is a, a water-based beverage, but it really comes down to these highly complex and proprietary blends of extracts and flavors, you know, trying to trying to come up with something that really replicates the, the mouthfeel and obviously the, the taste and flavor and experience and, and the burn of alcohol. Different brands are, are approaching these in different ways, but one of the brands that we import to the U.S.-ish from Copenhagen, one of their methods is they've got a special way to extract the heat from the shells of capsicum chilies which they then put into their gin and rum and tequila alternatives, which just gives you a really pleasant, natural feeling burn like you would experience from drinking uh, an alcoholic cocktail. And I asked, does it ever create a placebo effect of someone feeling like they're buzzed or inebriated after having these zero-proof drinks? We were doing a, a tasting with a bunch of alcohol executives uh, the other day, and we drank probably half a dozen different wine and spirits, maybe more. And if you sit there and have a few of these drinks, I think it's just so, uh, the placebo effect is so strong that you actually, you don't feel drunk, but sometimes you'll get a little flush and feel a little loosey-goosey. And without prompting these these guys who work in the alcohol industry, were like, man, I, I'm, I'm kind of feeling it. And uh, of course you're not, but, um, you know, it's just, I think it's testament to, to how well these companies are doing and and making making these alcohol alternatives. But with these cocktails, you have no hangover and it's safe to drive. I decided to ask Corey and Sean what their favorite zero proof cocktails have been lately. And this is what Corey had to say. I tend to really enjoy just things over ice. And so we have a new product called Pathfinder which is like a hemp based really really bitter 
um, almost like an Amaro meets a Fernet sort of uh, vibe. And it's super great just over a big ice cube um, with like an orange peel. And I, I'll drink that. And then honestly, it's so flavorful. It, I mean, I'll sip over it for an hour um, at the end of the night. Um, that's That's a really... I enjoy that a lot. If I'm making something more like Friday night, I like to use ish agave. It's a got a really nice like agave forward flavor, nice sweetness that from that agave flavor. And then like Sean was saying, that that little spice from the pepper and the finish with a little bit of lime juice and a little bit of simple syrup is a really nice margarita alternative. And my wife is really enjoying those. And here's Sean. I love Negronis, as as a lot of folks do, just good citrus, good bitter. So I like to mix up a Negroni using three of the products that we sell. It's equal parts, very simple, but you use Nista floral wormwood, which is the vermouth in the mix. You use Ginish from Ish, which is the gin, and then Wilfred's aperitivo, which uh, is, is the Campari. And you just do equal parts of that over ice, a little orange peel, and you've got a great complex adult sipper. Corey co-owns the Zero Co shop with his wife, Mallory. The two are hoping to keep up with the high demand that they've been met with since opening last month. There's been sort of unprecedented demand that we weren't really expecting, which has been great. But at the moment, we're just trying to uh, bring in as many new products as we can and then work to get those products into people's hands through events and tastings. Corey Atkinson, the co-owner of the Zero Co shop. And the Zero Proof CEO and co-founder, Sean Goldsmith, speaking with City Lights producer, Summer Evans. More information about their online and retail business is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, artist Harry Underwood discusses the use of vintage postcard stencils in his nostalgia-inducing paintings. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz's Thank you for being here. Although the work of artist Harry Underwood is often labeled folk art or outsider art, that description really just taps the surface. Underwood creates a dream world of retro figures engaging in seemingly joyful, nostalgic activities, yet often tinged with sadness. When the artist was in town for his outdoor worship exhibition this past October, he spoke with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Underwood began by explaining why he started creating art. I wanted to start painting to give uh, life a better meaning, really. And... Um... So for a long time, I didn't know what I was going to paint about, and I had to think that over and consider it. Uh, everything's been done so, so often. So I, I looked back at my own history to, to decide. What was the very first piece that you painted? 
The first thing I did uh, was with watercolors and I was uh, just painting a bicycle that I had, uh, not even considering painting people. And yet that's where you landed and where you are most well known now is for these stenciled figures that they remind me a lot of vintage postcards. Where did you get your original inspiration for the figures? I have looked at a lot of postcards and old magazines. Um, I think maybe the the way that my characters are posed reflect that, uh, sort of like old advertising where um, there isn't a whole lot going on activity-wise, and the people are just in a scene that's a very beautiful scene. When you first started painting after you did that first watercolor of the bicycle, how did you go about finding your artistic voice and focusing on people? I had been reading an awful lot in my early 20s. I was really into reading and uh, I didn't really have the education to, to become a writer, I didn't think. So uh, looking at other folk art, I noticed that people wrote on their paintings and uh, that that would be a good way to incorporate writing and, and pictures, put it all together. Yep. So you do often incorporate penciled paragraphs onto your work. It's almost like when you're viewing one of your pieces that I feel like personally, like I'm having a small conversation with you. Are there particular things that you're trying to articulate when you're writing on your work? I am. I do a lot of my own thinking there. So it's kind of like having a conversation with myself. It can be very personal. I can think about reasons for things and answers to problems. I've always tried to think of a really good line that, uh, you know, if some people could hear the right thing, maybe it would, would cure something. That's a very sweet thought. I feel like I might have buried the lead a bit in your point A to point B story. I had heard that you used to sell your work at an antique mall in Tennessee. And then at some point, an English art dealer noticed your talent and asked to exhibit your work at the Outsider Art Fair in New York. Uh, that, that's somewhat the truth. No, I, uh, I had an art dealer in uh, Chicago passed me on to an art dealer in Ohio and then I got in touch with an English art dealer who took my work to the Outsider Art Fair. And I've been doing that for a lot of years now. The Outsider Art Fair particularly? Yeah, yeah. My my artwork had been there for a very long time, and I, I've been there in person twice. Do you but, consider uh, yourself an outsider artist? That's where I fit, I think, uh, you know, because of the way I, I came into this. I had drawing experience and ability as a kid, you know, like everybody else, but I, I never was taught that. My my dad can draw really well. Mm. I can't draw as good as him. So we kind of competed or I tried to compete. And um, But when it came time to express myself, I, I re realized that uh, there's more to it than uh, skill. And I developed these other ways to go about it. Yeah, so you've developed very unique processes. Would you mind elaborating on the stencils and how they get incorporated into your work? I think I started doing it originally just because I wanted to have a backup of things if I made a mistake or if I didn't like something. And uh, that does happen a lot. Like right now, I'm, I'm reworking an older painting from a few years ago, trying to to make it more pleasing, it kind of, it didn't have the uh, bright colors that I, I really do like to use. I've, I've heard the word composite used a lot with um, people that do collage work. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so instead of taking just an ordinary photograph and, and imitating that or using it, you can cut it all apart and you can make new human bodies out of uh, several parts and you can create a whole cityscape that way too. But I've, I have used my own photographs. There was a really good one I took once of Birmingham, Alabama, the skyline there. I used it several times and uh, it worked really well. That's so cool. So once you cut a stencil, do you incorporate it into multiple pieces? I can, yeah. It's like, uh, I always wanted to, to think of it as like having a formula where you needed a building and you need some plants and you need people and you can interchange the things. And when you're working with words too, uh, you can interchange that. You could uh, replace all the words on a painting and say a whole different thing about it. Uh, so it's there's so much flexibility in doing it this way. Do you think that there's an overall theme that runs through your work? Yeah, I, I do. How can I explain that? It's um, like we mentioned how I came from Florida. So, you know, if you grow up in Florida, you're going to go into the school or go into work life and um, see people around you that are there enjoying their vacation. So you're working and living in a place where people are vacationing and you're feeling different than that. So, but uh, I picked up on that and making paintings about that. I, I've learned to enjoy those kind of ideas. That's really interesting. So the idea of growing up in a place where people are constantly on holiday around you, are your pictures as the outsider looking in? They could be, I suppose, yeah. Later now, I'm 53. I've learned to to get more free time. I used to work all the time on this. And uh, so I can take vacations and I do things. You're here at the studio. I can just go for walks and think a pic picture over. You know, I used to do that a lot. I still do. I used to think all the time on these walks around here about uh, the problems with the painting and how to fix them and uh, now I use my walks more to uh, relax and to clear my head. And when I come back to work, it's easier. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like you've developed a, a better balance in your head about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm less nervous about it. It's it's really become comfortable for me. That's wonderful to hear. That's just wonderful to hear. So I have to ask you, growing up in Homestead, did you spend time visiting Coral Castle when you were younger? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. No, I, I've driven past it my whole life. I never went inside the place. Um, I used to see it uh, going to school every day, and you could see the tops of it, and we didn't live very far from there. I always thought about it. My dad uh, knew the man. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, And then the other day, I saw it in a really old movie they had filmed there called uh, Nude on the Moon. An old movie has that in the backdrop. Oh, so. that's so cool. For the unfamiliar, Coral Castle is this amazing sculpture garden built by one man, Edward Leeds Scallion. I believe it took him maybe 25 years to build. It is said that he built it completely by himself out of over a thousand tons of rock. It's a very mysterious accomplishment and a very cool place to go check out if you're ever in South Florida. It is, it, you know, and he was a self-taught folk artist doing that. Um, 
Really, I grew up more, uh, you know, that was where we lived and we lived around the farms out there and I had relatives that were farmers. And as a teenager, I got interested in the, the Art Deco architecture world of uh, Miami Beach. Mm. So that was a big, really inspired me it, to this day. Artist Harry Underwood speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about Underwood's work is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978 as host of both blues classics and jazz classics. H educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Well, we're on the right track again, Lois. We're talking about great, great jazz musicians, and I'm glad to do this. I'd like to talk about one now that's no longer with us. As a matter of fact, he passed away in an auto accident in his mid-20s. That's when he was taken away from us, his mid-20s. He was born in 1930 and left in uh, 56. His name is Clifford Brown, a great trumpet player, great trumpet player. He played with everyone in the world of jazz in his youth. They all appreciated him. Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, Kenny Doran. But he ended up playing professionally with his own group and with Max Roach in the mid-50s. He was a great trumpet player. Big with Miles and Fats Navarro. Got a scholarship to Maryland State College. But he was hospitalized in a crash. The crash that killed him came in 1956, but he was hospitalized from another crash. So he left a legacy of great recordings behind. And he was a swinger, unrelenting. He, He would have become, according to the critics and the people who know, he would have become a major force in jazz had he lived, but he left us too early. I want to share with you right now something from Clifford Brown. It's very difficult sometimes to find something to share with you because everything I hear by some of these artists I like. So it's difficult to pick one particular selection that I can share with you. And I think this is a little different because although Clifford played on recordings with jam sessions, there was one in particular he did, like Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker did an album with strings, buried with strings, and Clifford Brown did something with strings. This is a different venue for him. So, having said that, the only problem I have picking a recording from his strings, Clifford Brown with strings album, is to pick the right one because he has so many great recordings on here. So many interpretations of standards like Yesterday's from Jerome Kern, Laura, you know what I mean? Blue Moon, You Saw Me Standing Alone, Embraceable You, Oh Man, Willow We For Me, Stardust, and the list goes on. But I tell you what, I said Embraceable You, didn't I? Yeah, a lot of old timers may be listening, a lot of young people too who would appreciate his tone, his dedication, his elocution, everything about this man Clifford Brown comes out well on this particular recording with him. So let's go with, from the album, Clifford Brown with Strings. Let's share with you Embrace Me, My Sweet Embraceable You, Embraceable You, Clifford Brown. Thanks, Lois. Thank you. 
W-A-B-E's H. Johnson, and our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Today, he featured trumpeter Clifford Brown. You can hear the full-length version of Embraceable You on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Catch H's Blues Classics show tonight and every Friday beginning at 10 p.m. And do return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night beginning at 8, right here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, Monday at 11 a.m. The co-curators of Out Down South talk about their exhibition on view now at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Plus... Music contributor Vaughn Phoenix stops by with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.